If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. If you're a visitor here, we especially want to welcome you. Um, You are coming right here in the midst of an exposition of John's gospel. And today you shall be blessed above measure because what we're entering into now is the actual crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you are one who has grown up hearing this story over and over and over again. You've heard it so much that because you don't truly understand it, you're becoming callous to it. You're becoming overly familiar with it. I was blessed to speak with a lady after the last service. And she was blessed in that she has grown to come to a new understanding of the meaning of the cross. Because she's grown up thinking that Jesus was a victim. That poor Jesus was arrested and poor Jesus was beaten and poor Jesus was falsely accused and poor Jesus was nailed to a cross. But what you shall come to learn this morning, if that's what you believe, Jesus was crucified by the word of God. He had to be. He had to be. For if he had not been according to the word of God, no one would be saved. No one could be saved. Embrace the cross, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ. Embrace the cross. And I hope this morning that the songs, the the, the words in the songs that together we proclaimed to the Lord have meaning to your heart. That's why we sing hymns. Because they have meaning, they have substance. We're not singing about rose gardens and flowers and birds and that. That's God's created order. We're singing about the cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. John chapter 19, picking up where we left off last week. Verse 16. Jesus has at this point been falsely accused, tried before the Sanhedrin, Beaten, mocked, handed over to Pilate. Pilate wanted to let him go. Pilate knew he was innocent. But Pilate wasn't wanting to let him go because he knew that he was the Lord of glory. He just didn't want any more political problems with Caesar. He tried to stand in the ground of neutrality. And my friends, no one stands in the middle with Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him. So then, verse 16 He, Pilate, handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, or Aramaic, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Throughout John's gospel, we've witnessed many miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we've witnessed many signs. And those signs are recorded in chapters 1 through 12. From chapter 13 to 17, that consists of one night that's known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus spends his last night with his 11 true disciples. Judas is gone. He's a false disciple. And then that's followed up by the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, which led us into John 18. And here we are in John 19. But those miracles or those signs had meaning. And the meaning of those signs was much more significant than the event at hand was. Each of those events, each of those signs, each of those miracles pointed to another greater event, hallmarked by the phrase, the hour. This is the hour, my friends. Jesus said to his own mother, the wedding of Cana, when they said they've run out of wine, he says, what, what woman, what have you to do with me? For our hour has not yet what? Come. My hour has not yet come. What has that to do with us? So from those stone pots at the wedding at Cana that held water turned to wine, the turning over of the tables in the temple where Jesus made a cord of whips and chased out the money changers along with the animals and then made that striking statement, tear down this temple in three days I'll raise it up. His reference of being living bread from heaven to the Galileans who followed him in John chapter 6. The healing of the man born blind in the pool of Siloam in John chapter 9. To the resurrection of Lazarus, four days dead, in the grave, followed by the words, I am the resurrection and the life. All of those signs were important signs in their own right. But their deeper meaning awaited this hour, the cross. His hour has arrived. The crux of human history is the focus of our attention this morning, that being the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the message, The Death of Christ by the Word of God. Not by the hands of sinful men. By God. In his death, Jesus provides the gift that every other sign promised. Very important. The cross is the great and ultimate sign for which every other sign becomes like a shadow, you see. His ministry is complete, his trial is over. He ministered to the eleven, he prayed for the eleven, but the hour has arrived, redemptive history has reached its apex. This is it. This is the hour for which Jesus was born, friends. 
For all along, the Lord Jesus Christ has been saying, my hour has not yet come. They tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him over a cliff. They could not take him because his hour had not yet arrived. Here now his hour has arrived. And in the coming weeks, beloved, we shall see the victory of Christ's cross. This is not plan B. God never wrings his hands as he looks down at depraved mankind and then says, oh, they're going to crucify him, so let's make that the path to me. No, this was preordained, this was planned, and as you shall see, every minute detail of the trial and the accusations and the arrest and the brutal beating and the death of our Lord was preordained. Amen. It's Jesus who controls his own death, friends, in order to achieve his own end. And his end is to fulfill the word of God. And who's the word? Gashua. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He's the word. And what we will see is the vile, diabolical sins of men combined with the divine sovereign purpose of God brought together in order to bring redemption to the world. For by which many will be saved. Now, Peter emphasized this reality, the sovereignty of God and the evil of man, when he preached at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he cries out and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now listen to this. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Human responsibility. Now, most studies on the passion of the Lord in the whole week preceding the cross, and the cross itself is known as the passion of Christ. In most studies, stress the human side of the Lord's suffering. And as the Son of Man, he did indeed suffer to the highest degree, no doubt about it, bearing the shame, the scourging, the bloody beating, the spitting, and the disregard for every claim he made. He suffered. Nevertheless, more than all others, it was God the Father who was especially active in the death of our Lord. And we must never, ever forget that. This is God's plan. And he's using sinful men as a means to his end. Psalm 22, Messianic Psalm, verse 15 says, And you, God, lay me in the dust of death. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him, the Messiah, to grief. So behind the evil activity of sinful men is the activity of sovereign God, for without which, as I said, no one could be saved and no one would be saved. He's the author, and he is the fulfillment of the authorship, beloved. Now, in his hour, Jesus was in no way a victim. If you ever think of Jesus as being a victim, you must remove that from your mind, and you must begin to see him as victor. 
And he's on the road to triumph here, beloved, this morning. And we will see this unfold today and in the weeks to follow. He was crucified by the hate of men only because of the divine sovereign will of God. That's it. He couldn't have died. Jesus would have lived in a physical human body had he not chosen to lay his life down, had he not chosen to come and to deliver himself to men. He wouldn't have died of old age because the consequence of sin is death. He was the sinless son of God. He came for this hour. Now, we're going to see repeatedly that John displays the Lord's victory and death by way of fulfilled prophecy. Notice verse 24. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says. And we'll, and you're going to see as well other things come to life from the pages of scripture to show you that the scripture must be fulfilled. Now, God uses the hateful things of men to accomplish his purpose. And as you know, John's gospel was written to exemplify the deity and the majesty of Jesus Christ, and that purpose is no less true right here in his crucifixion. This book, this letter was written to declare the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus was God incarnate. He was the God-man, always in control, always subject to the will of the Father, perfectly in obedient perfection, all the way to and through the cross. And in this count, he is once again glorified as God by way of prophetic fulfillment, prophecy. Now, there's two kinds of prophecy in Scripture. There is that which is verbally predicted and that which is typically predicted. First, verbal prediction is something that is said, something that is declared, and that which is said or declared comes to pass perfectly. Secondly is that which is typically predicted. These are certain types pictures or, or shadows of something that Christ will do. Like the Old Testament picture of the sacrificial lamb. You weren't to break any bone of the lamb. You were to slay the lamb, and you were to take the blood of the lamb, the, Egypt, or, uh, the Israelites before they fled Egypt, and put it over the door in the lentil. That was a foreshadowing of that which Christ would fulfill, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. So every verbal prediction and every type of prophecy are all resolved, i.e. fulfilled, in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Both kinds of prophecy are equally significant. And we shall see in the coming weeks that Jesus fulfilled both the verbal and all the types of prophecy to the letter. The most minute details revealed is fulfilled in, in and through Christ. Now, 
With that said, we must not forget, once again, who's primarily behind the suffering of the Son of God, and it is God the Father. And we'll observe three features of God's sovereignty revealed through the death of Christ, at least this time. For this morning, they're outlined for in your bulletin. Number one, we will see the Son's crucifixion. Secondly, we will see the Son's inscription. And thirdly, we shall see the Son's mortification. His crucifixion, his inscription, and his mortification. Now, we left off last time in verse 16. Take a look. We see that he, Pilate, then handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, Pilate, as I said, he should have freed Jesus. He was in a state of paranoia. He was already in trouble with Caesar. And the Israelites knew this, and the Jews held the puppet strings over Pilate. So everything he decided to do was manipulative in that he feared losing his position and possibly having his head severed had he freed Jesus. But he was torn because he knew Jesus was innocent. He wanted them to say, yeah, let him go. So he made every effort for that to come to pass. There again, he was a man who stood in the middle. If you're standing in the middle with Jesus Christ, friends, you have decided against him. If you've been to church your whole life and you stand in the middle, you love the world, but you believe Jesus is Lord, you have decided against him. And I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit has you here to grant you repentance to become a true, born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. This leads us to his crucifixion. Verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, the they who took Jesus were likely the Roman soldiers who had received Jesus from Pilate. Pilate handed him over. Now, no doubt, the chief priests, the religious Jews of the day who hated Christ, who wanted him crucified, were no doubt taking the lead in the procession out to Calvary. But notice, he would first be ordered to bear his own cross, as every convicted criminal was ordered to do. Now, Jesus at this point would have been placed in the center of a quaternion, four soldiers, four Roman soldiers. Now, Peter experienced this as well in Acts chapter 12. It says, when he, Herod, had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. So here's Jesus handed over from Pilate to the crucifixion crew, which was made up of four Roman soldiers, and they would take the horizontal crossbeam of the cross, which, was, which weighed upward of 100 pounds, lay it upon the criminal's shoulders. He would throw his arms over it and have to struggle and carry it like an oar all the way outside of the city to his place of crucifixion. And imagine that. The torn shoulders of our Lord lacerated from the scourging. He's bloodied. He is beaten beyond recognition, as Isaiah said. He's been marred. He was marred more than any man. And here you have this raging sting of severed nerve endings rubbing against the wooden beam. You know, another type of Christ in the Old Testament was Isaac. 
the one and only son of Abraham. God ordered Abraham to sacrifice his son on the altar. Abraham obeyed. He takes his son. And Genesis 22.6 says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. Here now the only one and only begotten son of God has the beam of the cross laid upon him. The ultimate sacrifice. Preordained, predetermined, planned by God. Foreshadowed through Isaac, who's a type of Christ. Now, it's interesting that Roman law said this. Once one was convicted of their crime and sentenced to death on a cross, he was given a two-day period between sentencing and crucifixion. 48 hours. And this was in order that the prisoner could get his things, his belongings, and his life in order before he was taken. And also, just in case any evidence came in to declare his innocence, it could then be presented. But not so with Jesus. Jesus went from Gabbatha to Golgotha, no stops in between. From the judgment seat before Pilate to the place of crucifixion, no 48 hours. Nothing. Why? Why the violation of the Roman law here? Reason? Because Jesus would be crucified during the time of Passover as the slaughter of the Passover lambs was taking place. 700 years before this day, before Christ's crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah spoke. Isaiah 53, 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not resist. He did not fight. He was led out like a sheep to the slaughter. So the fact of the matter here is that Rome's law is in submission to the sovereign, sovereign will of Almighty God. Amen? You see the picture? You see the sketch, the outline being drawn? So the hypocrisy of these religious Jews, the wickedness of Rome, the cowardice of Pilate, all are only serving to accomplish the agenda of God, which is the manifest victory of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand the price of your redemption, beloved? Do you understand the price that was paid for you if you're in Christ? And if you're not in Christ this morning, you have a world of trouble. Because you will face, if you die in this condition, if you die in this condition outside of Jesus Christ, you will suffer outer darkness. If you think of the loneliest place and the loneliest time of your life and you magnify that a million times, that's what hell is. Alone. This is what he came for. To deliver you from that judgment. Because as you, as you shall see, that's what he suffered on the cross. As the father turned his back on the son. Rejected. Rejected. Isaiah 53.8. 
prophesied the Messiah by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. No fair trial, no 48 hour period. All of this and all of these evil men are subject to the divine timetable of God. Now, customarily, the man being crucified was led to the site of execution by the longest route possible. And this was to show all of the masses, this was to show all of the citizens that crime does not pay. Notice here in the text, they took him. And they took him where? They took him and they went out. Very important that we understand this. Now, the procession here moved him from Pilate's judgment seat to the place outside the city called Golgotha, the place of a skull. That's what Golgotha means. It means skull. In Latin, it's Calvaria, from where we derive our Calvary, which also means skull. Now, again, this was outside of the city, and it's very important that we understand this. He was taken outside of the city. He had to be crucified outside the city. Now, with your finger here in John 19, turn back to Leviticus chapter 4, third book of the Bible. God gave Israel specific instructions for animal sacrifices and what the priests were to do with those sacrifices before they burned them on the altar as a sweet-smelling incense unto the Lord. They were to be cut down the middle, their blood was to be sprinkled in certain areas, and then the priests were to take out certain organs. Okay, listen to the instruction. Leviticus 4, verse 8. He, the priest that is, shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. This becomes then a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. All that good barbecue smell you smell? That's fat. (laughs) It smells so good. Notice verse 11. But, but the height of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, dung, that is all the rest of the bull. He is to bring out to a clean place outside of the camp where The ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. These other parts, including refuse, was to be burned outside the camp as a stench. A stench. Jesus was taken outside of the city, outside of the city gates, as a stench. This is a picture of what Jesus was judicially, brothers and sisters. In our place as the sin offerings for sinners. He is the ultimate sin offering. All of the others were foreshadowings, types. The way of the stench is the way of our sin, brothers and sisters, to a holy God. This is what you are. This is what I am, a stench to holy God. That's what your sin is. That's what your sin does. And because of the blood of Christ, you're cloaked in his righteous robes, no longer a stench. Because when God sees you, he sees his son. That's the price that was paid. 
The New Testament, Hebrews 13, verse 11, reads, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate as a stench. Stench is inserted. I inserted it. Because that's the picture. Jesus went outside the gate of Jerusalem as the ultimate sin offering where his sufferings and his death render his people, born again of the Spirit, holy, forgiven, cleansed, purified, justified, sanctified, one day to be glorified. So then, by the hands of godless men, God is working to accomplish His divine purposes through the preordained cross of the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's not a victim. You don't do God a favor by coming to faith in Him. No one does God a favor. He does all the work from the beginning to the end. It's His work. You cannot boast in your salvation. You did God no favor by getting down on your knee. Nothing. It was all merited by him. Boast not. So not only does God work his divine purposes through holy men of God and holy men of women doing his will, God also works his divine purposes through wicked men and wicked women. God is never, ever subject to man, brothers and sisters. God never wrings his hands. He's never pulling on his ear going, what am I going to do next? The nations are in upheaval. What am I going to do? He is in absolute sovereign control of every minute detail in this universe, beloved. Every aspect. Nothing is outside. Nothing is in rebellion to his sovereign purposes. Nothing. Not one atom is in rebellion against God. Nothing. His will will be done. Christian or not, every man is subject to the sovereign will of God. Well, if you sit here this morning and say, why do anything then? We'll just throw our hands up. Why do anything if God is subject to, you know, if we're subject to everything, we have no will? Let me tell you something. God's sovereign will is never, ever affected by what we do or don't do. Never. Why not throw your hands up in the air? Because God has a commanded will for your life. And you're called to obey it. And as you're a believer in Christ, he grants you the power and the ability to obey it. This is not some fatalistic perspective in life. He has a sovereign will, yes, but he has a commanded will right in the middle. And you are called and I am called to obey by grace and the power of his spirit. Because he lives in you. He enables you. There's no temptation so great that he not, does not provide the way of escape. If you fall into sin, you did not follow the way of escape. You like that? <laughs> I remember where I left off here. <laughs> Verse 18. There, Golgotha, outside the gate, 
a place of a skull, they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, having carried this horizontal cross beam until he no longer had strength, he fell. He couldn't bear the hundred pounds any longer. Mark 15, 21 says, They, the Romans, pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross the rest of the way. Once they arrived at the place of execution, where the upright beam was already standing, they had the criminal lie down on his back, where they would stretch out their arms, nail them to the cross with large spikes, lift up the cross beam with the prisoner attached, and slam him onto the vertical piece, and then nail his feet to the vertical beam. 1,000 years before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 22, verse 16, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Long before crucifixion was ever, ever invented, beloved. Even thought of in the minds of man. The Lord is now crucified. His hour has arrived. Now, crucifixion was a horrific way to die. I'm not going to go into all the medical details of it because, you know, our text is more focused on the deity of Christ over and through the cross. However, Romans shuddered to even talk about crucifixion. Cicero declared that it was the cruelest and most horrifying death possible. Tacitus said it was a despicable death. And Josephus, first century Jewish historian who watched many crucifixions during Titus's conquest of Jerusalem, referred to it as the most wretched of all deaths. A brutal way to die. It would turn your stomach to watch a crucifixion. It was invented by the Persians, and eventually it was brought into practice and popularized by the Romans. However, it was never intended for Rome. It was never intended for Roman citizens, rather. Regardless of their crime, no Roman citizen would be or could be crucified. The death sentence of crucifixion was reserved for foreign slaves and criminals. You see, beloved... This is exactly why Jesus was born into the world, and this is why he came out of heaven, became a man. It was to die a redemptive death, and it had to be just at the right time in human history. Did man plan that? I hardly think so. God is sovereign. You know, Jesus came into the world by the way of a sign, and Jesus went out of the world by the way of a sign. Remember his arrival? Who announced his arrival when he was born? An angel of God. To who? Lowly shepherds watching their flock by night. Right? Luke chapter 2 verse 12 says, And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Wrapped in cloth would be the sign Soon thereafter, he'd be visited by magi, which are, means king makers, and they came from the east, and they brought gold, and they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. He comes in by way of a sign, and then he leaves the world by way of a sign, as he would be hung between two criminals naked. 
naked. He comes in clothed. He goes out naked. Publicly. Isaiah 53.12 says that he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That was the sign. Mark 15.27 cites that. And they said they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Prophesied. Written. Preordained. Now, these men on either side of Jesus are referred to as robbers, evildoers, insurrectionists. They were likely involved with Barabbas, who was set free in Jesus' place just hours before the crucifixion. Now, the effect of this idea, whosever idea this was, probably Pilate, was to add insult to injury. Jesus is identified with the lowliest of criminals here. You might call this guilt by association. So here the Lord of glory is hanging on a cross, and to the natural eyes, to natural man, he's lost in the crowd of depraved humanity. The Lord of glory. Crucified with criminals. But think about it. Isn't it interesting that God seems to, del- God seems to delight in typology? God seems to delight in symbols. God seems to delight in ironies. See, Christ being crucified between two criminals is is symbolic of his entire ministry. Who did he hang out with? Tax collectors and harlots. He came to mix and mingle with transgressors. He came to mix and mingle with depraved people like you and the chief of depraved sinners like me. Amen? That's who he came for. And he was accused by the Jewish religious elite of keeping company with tax collectors and harlots. He was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Mark chapter 2, verse 16, the Pharisees asked his disciples, they said, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now when Jesus heard this, he said to them, the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repent. To repentance. Jesus did not come to condone their sin. He did not come to tap, tap them on the head and say, Oh, I know how it is out there, you little rascal. He didn't come to say, I know that it's not your problem. The sin's not your problem. You're a victim. It's your mom's fault. In all the psychobabble you hear today. He said he came to call sinners to repentance. And those who know they need life and the only physician there is, they will come to Christ. But those who think they have no need of a physician, those who think they're good enough in and of themselves, those who think they're religious, those who think, well, I'm not like the murders, and I'm not like the rapists, and I'm not like the drunks, and I'm not like the dope smokers. I'm a good person. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't cuss. You're the ones that are in trouble. Because just like the Pharisees, they did not see their need for the great physician. And they'd be condemned. So there he hangs between two of the vilest sinners of the day. One will repent, which we'll look at in a moment. 
The other will go to hell for eternity. How do you view Jesus Christ this morning? Is he just another historical biblical figure to you? Or do you realize your desperate need of him as Redeemer, Savior, and the Lord of glory? Have you bowed to him? Have you repented before the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you just grown up in the church hearing all this and it's old hat to you now? Repent. I pray that the Holy Spirit has you here today to cause you and grant you repentance to believe and to embrace him. Stop playing this game. You're deceiving yourself. I'm reading a book right now about Christian self-deception. It's called I Told Me So. (laughs) That's why I bought the book because the title grabbed me. I told me so. You're deceiving yourself, fool. That's what we do, but by the grace of God, amen. Do we see here who's in control of Jesus' death? Do we understand that it's God Almighty? It's not men, but it's the Word of God. Crucified according to the Word. That's His crucifixion, according to Scripture. Next, we see the Son's inscription. We look at His crime. Verse 19. Now, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, before Jesus was crucified, Pilate makes a placard, or he had it made. And then customarily, it would be hung around the neck of the criminal, and he would have to wear this thing all the way to the place of the skull. Or someone would hold it up and in front of him as they led him through town, declaring to everyone what his crime was. But there was no crime the Lord Jesus had ever committed. So Pilate sees this now as an opportunity to have the last word against the Jews. Pilate hated the Jews. He didn't write this because he believed. And if you read the scripture and think, oh, Pilate believed, he did not believe this. There was all kinds of political issues involved here, and you had to hear the sermon last week to understand that, the history of Pilate and all that was involved. You can listen online if you missed it. He did not believe this. He's paying lip service at this point. It's like many in the church today, they, play, they pay lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe. I believe. But they're not submitted to Christ. They've never been born again. Dangerous place to be. He may have written this to show his loyalty to Caesar. Whatever the case, he had inscribed, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, once it was written, it was nailed above the head of the Lord on the vertical portion of the cross, and then verse 20, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So he has this inscription prepared, it's fastened to the cross, and notice it's in the three major languages of the day. It's in Hebrew, or Aramaic, which was the common language of Judea at the time. Latin, the official language of the Roman army, and then in Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire. So you had the language of Zion, the language of the Acropolis, the language of the foreign of, of the forum, the language of the religion, language of culture, and the language of power, declaring the King of Kings to the world. So, it's in a revengeful manner here 
that Pilate has written this. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. What Pilate is saying here, he goes, Here your king is, you envious religious rogues. Written in three languages. Remember, Pilate knew why the Jews handed him over. Because of what? Because of envy. Because of envy. He hated the Jews. So Pilate mocks them. And by pointing to this humiliated, bloodied, beaten, and naked man hanging on a cross, he goes, there you go, you Jews. There's your king. And they feel very insulted by this because they also hated Jesus, their king. They rejected their only chance and opportunity to be saved, their only savior as prophesied. So, verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews, obviously, they're stung by the insult. They're deeply offended, so they protest. So they ask Pilate, look, make it clear that Jesus only claimed to be king, not that he was, in fact, king. Pilate answered, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. Which is to say, take it and like it. I'm not changing it. I'm the authority here, not you. You see, you get the picture? So here now is the inscription given to the Son of God written by the hand of sinful, wretched men, but that sign, that inscription said exactly what God wanted it to say. Because he was the king of the Jews. He was the promised Messiah. Rejected or not, he is king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. Whether people accept it and believe it or not, he is the Lord of glory. He's not one of many ways, friends. If you are here, once again, if you are here and you claim to be a Christian, you believe that Jesus is one of many ways, and who are we to say that he's the only way? The Bible says in 2 John 9 that you are not saved. That you don't know God. So Pilate here is unwittingly making known the heralded truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's truth was being declared to the world through the three languages of the known world. You know, to this very day, regardless of man's rejection and their attempt to make Jesus out to be some great religious leader, oh, he was a great teacher, he was a martyr for the cause, man, like your hippies, you know. Hippies don't have long hair anymore because some guy addressed me last week. Was that about my long hair? I'm not even thinking about hair here, brother. I'm talking about the hippie mentality. Yeah, Jesus, man, he's my homeboy. He's cool. He's happening. No, that's not Jesus. He's Lord of glory. You submit your life to him or not. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And regardless of what man thinks about the Lord Jesus Christ, when his truth is proclaimed, it will have a life-transforming effect on those who it was preordained to change. Guaranteed in God's perfect timing. So here's Jesus nailed between two insurrectionists, just like Barabbas, and then all of a sudden. Now remember, both criminals were mocking the Lord along with the rest of the mob below. Remember that? They both mocked. And all of a sudden, there's a change in one of them. And in Luke 23, 42, one criminal says this. 
Lord. Not buddy. Not mister. Not rabbi. Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did he know that? As he hung there next to God incarnate, how did he know that? Because he read the truth of the gospel that was nailed above his head. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. This man was a Jew as well. Jesus responded to him, Assuredly, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the other is wailing and weeping and gnashing his teeth in outer darkness, in utter dark, dark loneliness for eternity. Suffering God's wrath for eternity. God is in hell, according to Revelation. His wrath is there. Forever. What are we witnessing here? Jesus is a victim? No, we're witnessing Jesus the victor who defeated death. And this here was the inscription according to the preordained plan of God, although a sinful man wrote it in three languages. That's the son's inscription. Next, the son's mortification. In other words, his humility. In other words, his shame. Then, verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece. From the neck to the ankle, woven in one piece. Now, a Roman execution squad, as I said, it was made up of four Roman soldiers, and it was their right as Roman soldiers on the crucifixion team to gather the belongings to themselves of those who were condemned to death. This is common exercise for them. This is the norm. This is what they did every day. Now, the common attire of a Jewish man at the time of Jesus was made up of five pieces of clothing. You had the sandals, you had the belt, you had the turban or the head covering, you had the outer cloak, and then the inner tunic. Now, after distributing these first four pieces among the four soldiers, notice that they're carrying on as business as usual, by the way. These four idiots are passing to out the Lord of Glory's garments. He's hanging here. His feet are just inches above their head as they kneel down and divide his garments. And many people are like that today. They just pass through. They're complacent about Jesus. They're unmoved. Yeah, oh, I believe, I believe, but they're unmoved. And they remain in the middle at best. They hadn't a clue, this group. Now, had there been only four garments, there had have been no, no problem. But they come across this tunic, and it, cutting it up would do no one any good. So they rolled dice for it. 
Verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the word of God. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Why the details of the clothing? Because, once again, unbeknownst to these callous soldiers, the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel, sees this as nothing less than God's sovereign plan being played out unto perfection. Every detail, even the small, of the smallest order, is in perfect conformity and in harmony, harmony with the sovereign will of God. Perfectly. All revealed through the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. And they must be fulfilled. Whether verbal prophecy or types of prophecy, they will be fulfilled in their being fulfilled. So under God's sovereign framework, think about this. These four soldiers that are carrying on as usual, orders of the day. They had no choice. They had no choice. Because what was now customary for these soldiers was ordained by God. Now notice the word. Now notice verse 24. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's the written word of God, Psalm 22. Notice verse 25. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. That's why they did it. This is Psalm, this Psalm, as I said, was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. This is verse 18 of Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's as though John were saying, because of the fact that 1,000 years ago, King David penned these words by the breath of God, it couldn't have happened any other way. It's impossible. It had to happen like this. Who's in charge of the crucifixion? Sinful men are the Lord of glory. It's the Lord of glory. He's no victim. You know, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ from the cross, he cried out. The sinless, the sinless Lamb of God hung there naked, cursed, mortified, shamed, and he cries out, speaking the words of the psalmist David. He's cursed. Why is he cursed, beloved? Because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13, declaring that which is written in Deuteronomy. He's shamed. This is his mortification. He would hang there naked upon the cross while the world mocked and jeered at him. Think about this a moment. In Genesis, God informs us through the Holy Spirit that when God created man and woman, he created them in his image, and in his image he created the male and female. Genesis 2.25 says that the man and his wife were both what? Naked. And they were not ashamed. They were pure, undefiled, and undeshamed. 
But once they sinned, Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loin coverings. Naked and ashamed now. And what do they do? You get the picture? They're attempting to cover their guilt. God said you can eat from every tree, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you do, you shall surely die. And they died spiritually at that moment. That innermost personal relationship they had with God was severed at that point. They couldn't walk with God in the cool of the day any longer. They knew they had sinned. The consequence of sin is death. But what happens when we sin is we become guilty, don't we? And you try to cover up your sin. How do we do that today? Number one, you lie. We lie because we sin and we don't want to be caught. So it's one lie on top of another, lie after lie after lie. Other ways we try to cover our sins are by good works. I'll get me involved in some church down there. Yeah, I'll go to that Pacific Hope if I can stand the preaching for too long because they preach the truth. Instead of entertaining you, if you're a member of this church, you understand the difference, amen? Or if you've been coming here long enough. It's the love of the word. You love the word. You have to love the meaning of the word if you want to come to this church, amen? Many people say they love the word, but they don't preach the word. They don't go to churches that preach the word. You have to love the meaning of the word if you're going to love this church. We lie. We do good works. Oh, it's communion, many Christians will say. It's the first Sunday of the month, so I'll go take me some of the bread and some of the juice. I'll get me baptized. And they do those things without a personal living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not cover the guilt. Those acts in and of themselves. So not only did sin bring about for us guilt, it also brought about shame and sorrow and contempt. Daniel Chapter 12, verse 2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There are two kinds of people in the world, brothers and sisters. Those in Christ and those outside of Christ. No one in between. There's those in Christ and those that are not in Christ. And many of those that are not in Christ are many who think they're in Christ, but they're not in Christ. Because... There's nothing in their life that validates having been transformed by the supernatural presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom. It's the supernatural work of God. So Jesus hung on the cross not simply to die for our guilt, beloved, or our filth, or our stench, but also to die for our shame. Our shame. Jesus not only died for sin, but he also died for the effects of the sin. Guilt and shame. So here then is the mediator between God and man dying for the sins of men. Dying for our guilt, dying for our, for our filth, and dying for our shame. He must die naked. He must be stripped of his clothing. He must become a curse or you could not be saved. 
Now back to the Genesis account. After Adam and Eve fell and they attempted to cover themselves up, their covering was not acceptable to God. So Genesis 3.21 says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. In order to grant them or give them skins of an animal, God himself killed the first animal. He shed the blood to make provision for Adam and Eve who sinned. You see the type? You see the picture? You see this foreshadowing? You see, their attempt at covering their shame and guilt and stench was not acceptable to God. Religion is not acceptable to God. Just coming to church is not acceptable to God. You must be in Christ to be acceptable by God. He slew the animal. He shed its blood. And that is typical of the Lamb of God who would come, slain before the foundation of the earth. Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his sacrificial merits would clothe those who believe in his righteous robes, the only acceptable cloak to God Almighty. The only covering acceptable. So it's only by the way of Jesus Christ. It's only through his cross that anyone is acceptable to God. It's not merely agreeing with the facts. Have you been baptized into Christ? Not by water. I'm talking about spiritually baptized into Christ, covered by his righteousness. You must be born again, said Jesus. Now, as terrifying as the scourging was, as horrific as crucifixion is, the shredding of the Lord's back, muscles hanging out, his spine possibly visible, nerve endings sticking out, as gruesome as that was, along with the crown of thorns placed upon his head and beat upon his head, and the large spikes driven through his hands and driven through his feet, that was bad enough. But worse than that, and the thing that Jesus sweated blood in the garden over was not that. It was that he would face the Father's wrath, and the Father would turn his back on him as he hung in darkness for those three hours. That's why. That's why he said, if this cup can pass. Because the cup that Jesus wanted to pass was not physical affliction. The Old Testament which speaks of a cup. It speaks of the cup of God's wrath. So he would turn his back on the sun, while at the same time unleashing his rage, his holy rage upon his son, so that you could be saved. Are you cavalier about the cross? Take communion in a cavalier manner. Hopefully no more today. So the reason for it all is that Jesus, the incarnate son of God, as he would hang there, cursed, would become the virtual incarnation of evil. You see? He became the incarnation of evil. That's why the father had to turn his back on the son because God is holy. And his scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was the scream of abandonment. (sighs) The scream of the cursed, the scream of the damned, 
Make not light of the cross. He was damned. It's on the cross that Jesus Christ experienced hell. The teaching that says that Jesus had to go to hell to be born again is ridiculous lunacy. And if you listen to Joyce Meyer, she teaches that, by the way, ladies. She wrote it. And she was challenged and said, how do you come up with that doctrine? This is her answer. Well, the Holy Spirit has to show you that. Ridiculous! He only shows you what's here written. Declared. And there's others that teach it as well. Don't waste your time, ladies. And if you're a man and you listen to her, shame on you. (laughs) Jesus experienced ultimate, magnified, dark loneliness when the Father turned his back. I was thinking this week about the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And I remember a couple incidents in my life. One was about seventh grade. And the other was when I had to move around the country by myself and I didn't know a soul in the city. Pretty lonely times. Magnify that times a billion. And you might be able to understand what Jesus suffered on the cross. Maybe. It's been said that it's only those in hell who can even begin to slightly understand the absolute dark loneliness that Jesus suffered on the cross. Hell's not a party, beloved. You're alone in hell, in outer darkness, suffering the wrath of God forever and ever. That's why there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what he suffered on the cross. That's the cross, preordained, This is Christ the victor. See, those in hell have never tasted heaven. So the comparison falls short. Jesus, on the other hand, descended from glory. He came out of heaven, God of glory, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead in glory, lowered himself to take on a body. He became a man. He was the incarnate Son of God, preordained to be crucified, and he became the virtual incarnation of sin so that you could be saved. That's the cross. The death of Christ by the word of God. He's no victim. This is no tragedy, beloved. This is victory. And he'll go on to declare, as we'll see in a couple weeks, what did he say? It is what? Finished. Never have in your mind that Jesus is up there going, finally, a sigh of relief, it's over. No. It's in the positive. It is accomplished. I did it for the glory of my Father, according to his written word, man. That's why he came. Accomplished. What's accomplished? It's the realization that all of God's great and glorious promises as written are fulfilled to perfection. Perfectly. For us, what does that mean, beloved? I'm talking to Christians this morning. 
If you're not born again, I pray that everyone, when we leave here today, will be born again. What does it mean for us? It means our debt is paid in full. Your debt for sin, the stench of your sin, the guilt, the shame, paid in full. Our forgiveness achieved, our redemption secured, our salvation merited, eternal life purchased at a great price, a great, great price. It's the cross. Everything that we sang together about this morning was the cross. Purchased. You are bought. Do you live your life as though you've been bought at a great price? Out there? Or do you just slide in with the world and just love it? You've been purchased out of it. Why? Well, for one, it's so that this morning we can come to the Lord's table, beloved, remembering his broken body and his shed blood. And we can be absolutely certain that the Lord of glory came and fulfilled the New Testament, the New Covenant promise. He is the fulfillment. All the types, all the shadows, all of the verbal prophecies fulfilled in Christ. And the fact that everyone, everyone, everyone who shall be saved will be saved. Everyone that shall be saved will be saved. And everyone who desires to be saved can be saved. Because you cannot desire to truly be saved unless he's drawing you to himself anyway. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will, guaranteed, come to me, John 6, 37. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not what? Cast out. Look at verse 35 of John 19 as I close. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may what? Believe. Believe what? That in our place and for our sins, God's own son died willingly according to the scripture. No man took his life. No man could possibly have taken his life. Jesus is not a victim, beloved. Jesus is a victor of God's eternal decree that before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain. Amen? Amen. Perhaps you believe the facts about this all your life. You can't remember a time you didn't believe this. But perhaps today, by the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are truly believing this today. By way of a transformed mind, a repentant heart, and the life of the Spirit in you. If that's you, I pray that he'll reveal himself to you in that way. Now, Friday's work on the cross will be consummated on Sunday morning. That's the reason we meet on Sunday morning, because Christ defeated death. He rose from the dead. He beat death.
He rose from the grave. Victory, crushing sin, crushing Satan, crushing death. But the son had to be lifted up, you see. Because as the Old Testament said, just as the bronze serpent was raised up in the wilderness by Moses, you remember Moses lifted the bronze serpent? Why did he lift it? Because God commanded him to lift it. Why did he command him to lift it? Because God sent poisonous serpents to kill the people. Why? Because of sin. Who sent the serpents? God. Who caused Moses to make the brazen serpent? God. Who did he tell to raise up the serpent? Moses, Moses raised it up. God said, if you look at it, you could crawl, whether you crawl from one side of the camp of the Israelites to the other, when you look up by faith, you shall live. Christ had to be lifted up on a cross. And anyone who looks to him with true faith manifests by way of repentance. The fruit is repentance. You too shall be saved. See the type? You see, the antitype, the type was the brazen serpent. The antitype is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. Glory to God. Come to Christ if you're not in him this morning. And let's prepare our hearts to take communion. Father, we praise you for the glory of the cross. We praise you that there is not one radical, rebellious, molecule, Adam throughout the entire universe that is not subject to your sovereign will. And Father, I pray on behalf of your dear people here this morning, those who are in Christ, to come to understand to a greater measure the price of the cross. Grant us the grace, Lord, to adhere to the living scriptures that we can do all things through Christ to strengthen us, that in the midst of temptation that you always leave the way of escape, that as we pray without ceasing, we know that the scripture is true, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and that we can come to the table this morning knowing that we're positionally secure and righteous and pure. But may we never take lightly, Lord, what it cost to make us pure. Your shame, your sacrifice for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.